Thank you. It is my joy to be here for something other than a funeral, <laughs> especially my own. Uh, I want to offer an apology, first of all, for my voice. Uh, two things. Number one, I am recovering from a bad cold, but that's not the biggest issue. I am also recovering from a slit throat. Now, of course, it was intentional, and I got to watch it as the surgeon at Vanderbilt University Hospital cut my throat and implanted prosthetic devices, one behind each of my vocal cords, to enable me to do what I am doing today. For you see, over the years, it seems as though I have hollered a little too much as a preacher. <laughs> now I'm trying in my old age to, to cut back on that just a little bit and, and to speak more conversationally uh, and, and not assault anyone's ears. Actually, that's really not the case. Hey, kids, you know, looking at y'all, you used to be kids. You're not anymore. And I have become what we used to call some of you super senior adults. Do y'all know we used to call you fossils? <laughs> well, now I am one. It's the most amazing thing in the world. If you stick around long enough, you will become what you look at and say, oh no. <clears throat> so, so just forgive my voice uh, if it, it's still, about three weeks ago was when I had that surgery. I never imagined over 36 years ago when a man by the name of Richard Tinius showed up at Memorial Drive Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, where I was serving as pastor, that the providential hand of God was working in such a way that would result in my coming to the state of Alabama, a place that at one point I swore I would never, ever, ever, ever live. Why would anybody want to live in Alabama? Well, I've discovered only those who don't know what they're talking about. You see, I've discovered that the people that God really, really loves, He lets them be born in Mississippi, grow up in Arkansas, and come to live in Alabama for the rest of their lives. <laughs> but we are grateful for the providential hand of God. And I, I just say that to say, you don't know, particularly you young folks, you, you have no idea how God is orchestrating your lives right now if you will be sensitive and tender to his leadership. For as we are reminded in Jeremiah 29, 11, God has good things in store and in plan. A plan for all of us, not, not just you youngsters and you middlers and you middle olders, yes, even those of us who are fossils. God is still working out his plan in our lives. Now, I want you to know that's free. 
That's not a part of the message today. I just wanted to, to uh, touch base with that just a little bit, but not reminisce too much because I am here not to recount old stories, but to tell the old, old story. Our text today is Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8 and concluding with the last verse of the seventh chapter. Now, there are 60 verses in Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read all of those. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read in your hearing just a few verses beginning with verse 8 in Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. The more one understands the true nature of the gospel, the greater the likelihood of either, number one, embracing the radical faith to be found in Jesus, or, number two, rejecting Jesus and all he represents with militancy. Now you may say, well, that's not my experience. I, I, I really don't see that at all. Well, it just may be, if that's the case, it's because we really don't see too much demonstration of the true nature of the gospel. Let that percolate for just a little bit. Uh, the statement that I just read is illustrated time and time again in the Scripture and clearly reflected in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Those who heard and understood the essence of the good news of salvation and life change brought about by Jesus demonstrated a willingness to radically reorient their lives in light of this newfound understanding of their faith. At the same time, those who were committed to maintaining the status quo in their personal lives and in their religious experience were unwilling to simply let those things go. 
allowing people who were so inclined to embrace Jesus and then for them to go on with their own lives. They instead determined to resist with all the passion and power they possessed and thereby thwart the proclamation of the gospel. In in their initial encounter with the religious authorities in Jerusalem, and you can see if you're familiar with Acts, Peter and John were what? They were threatened and then released. The next exchange found all of the apostles arrested, threatened, and then beaten prior to release. Finally, in the passage under consideration today, Stephen loses his life as the first Christian martyr due to the passionate and militant rejection of his message by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. The call of God is clearly to embrace the gospel. This church exists, and as a matter of fact, every New Testament church worthy of the name exists for the purpose of presenting the claims of God on the life of each one and issue a call for response by embracing Jesus as personal Savior and Lord, thus becoming a faithful follower, a disciple of His. So, What about this embracing the gospel? That's, by the way, the title of the message, if you like to take notes and title your notes, embracing the gospel. Embracing the gospel requires radical change. Radical change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a better Example of his old self. No, that's not what it says. He is a new creature. He is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, we know that Paul was able to say this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 because he understood what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, embracing the gospel requires a new birth. And by this we understand that that a person does not grow up as a Christian. A person does not uh, become only confirmed as a Christian, a person must have this radical reorientation of their lives by which and through which they who were dead in their trespasses and sins are made alive together in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel of the new birth. It also calls for a radical reorientation regarding our relationships. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, we read these words. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who is my brother? By the way, that's not because Jesus didn't know. 
And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Changed relationships. You know, one of the greatest challenges to a, a, a teenager coming to faith in Christ is developing new relationships and not being pulled down by old relationships. It's a, it's a great challenge for adults who come to faith in Christ to, to have around them the, the kinds of people that build them up and not tear them down. By the way, uh, I was going to mention the names of, of several folks that I play golf with over here on a regular basis uh, when I told them that I was supplying today and they said, oh, I hate that, I'm gonna be out of town. Uh, and so I said, well, I'm gonna call your name from the pulpit, but the list got too long. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. I, I'm, I'm gonna suggest that they just were too busy or, or something like that, I, I just don't know. <laughs> but, but remember, the new values of the kingdom of God we read about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That, that, that's a reflection of a changed value system that says, it used to be like this. I used to think like this. I used to believe like this. I used to do these kinds of things, but now no longer because I have changed priorities, Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So the radical change includes the new birth, changed relationships, changed values, and changed Priorities. Each of these radical changes can be, and, and, and I believe, perceived as completely positive, making for the very best life possible. Certainly anyone can see the advantage of the opportunity to begin life again like a baby, fresh with no baggage from the past and nothing... Uh, but a bright future ahead. And yet, it is the reality reflected, reflected in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that gives some folks significant difficulty. Not everyone, not everything in our former lives or, or current lives is easy to give up or move beyond. Furthermore, we, we don't know that really want to. As a matter of fact, there are those things we simply have no intention of changing. But when God calls us to follow him, it's not up to us to pick and choose what we will give up and what we will keep. Do you know that? God has, has clearly articulated in his word how we are supposed to live, who we are supposed to be, what our values are, the kinds of relationships we are to cultivate both for building us up and for reaching out to those who still need to hear the life-changing gospel. You see, we, we have a new boss, that's why he's the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And he is the one who, who really gives us our marching orders and to whom we are accountable and from whom we receive a picture of what our life is supposed to be like. He, he has given us his word that we study and internalize. He has given us his spirit who dwells within us to guide us in to the interpreting and the applying of the word that he has given to us. Now, as, as I was thinking again about this message and as I was working through the implications of the radical, this radical change, it occurred to me, for many of us, uh, Matt had a, a hand raising earlier. I want to hand that hand raising. You can't accuse me of being Pentecostal because he's already done it. Uh, uh, I want to see the hands, if I may, of those who grew up in a Christian home and came to faith in Christ at some point during elementary school. Can I just raise your hand? All right, I, I, thank you. That, that is actually the majority of us here this morning, uh, which includes me. I came to faith in Christ as an eight-year-old boy. I turned eight in November and gave my life to Christ that spring. Now, can I be honest with you? As best I understood, I was not the world's worst sinner. I was a sinner, accountable to the Lord, and apart from faith in Christ, bound for hell. But guess what? I, 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 had not, I, I really had not had an opportunity to get into that much stuff. I had parents who would keep me from getting into that much stuff. Uh, my mother and dad both believed in uh, the application of the rod of correction to the seat of understanding. <laughs> and, 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 and so uh, I just didn't. So what, what I'm trying to say is the radical transformation that took place was internal for me and I move from spiritual death to spiritual life at a moment in time, but my life was not radically different on the outside as was the case of the vast majority of you who raised your hands a moment ago. But here's the thing, friends. If our lives have not grown to reflect accurately the kingdom values that we find in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the rest of the scripture, the, the priorities that are God's, then that profession of faith that we may have made as a child is, is suspect if our lives look more like the culture around us than the spirit within us. Are you catching my drift? I still believe that 
adult conversions such as are reflected in the pages of the New Testament give us the best picture of what a radical life transformation looks like today. But for the vast majority of us, the only way to see that is by putting our lives and our lifestyles and our decisions and our values and our priorities up against that of the culture. And I suggest to you today that never at more at a time in my life has the church look more like the culture than it does today. And that does not make me happy to say. So, we move on subjecting our lives to the white-hot light of the, of the Word of God and putting ourselves consistently in line with that revelation. And thus people look at us and they say, wow, you're different. And that gives us the opportunity to tell them why we're different. Why we don't buy into all this junk. Why, why, we, don't, why we don't allow our... You see, I guess part of what I'm saying, friends, is, let me say this very quickly, is that there, there is this message that I hear out there uh, from some uh, Christian sources these days that say, really, really, it's, it's all only about love, loving people and loving Jesus. And we don't need to go to seed on all of this doctrine stuff and all of this lifestyle stuff. Hey, that makes people uncomfortable when they think that you're trying to tell them how to live. Hey, guess what? Be uncomfortable. God's Word tells us how to live. And we ought to, we ought to see it reflected in our lives. Now, now, to be certain, the first and greatest commandment is what? to love the Lord your God, and the second is likened to it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not downplaying the importance of love. All I'm saying is that the way we love God ought to be reflected in the way we live our lives. And it should stand in stark contrast to the world system out there. Now, let me go on quickly to say that embracing the gospel also requires an enlarged understanding of God. Simply put, God won't fit in your box or mine. People like to put God in the place box and in the rules box. Uh, have you ever found your, yourself reading the, the sermon or defense made by Stephen in chapter 7 and wondered what the big fuss was all about? Sometimes I think that's a challenge for us when we are trying to come from our context into that first century context? Is there something really radical in this stuff that would cause the religious leaders to go off their nut and stone a guy to death? Essentially, Stephen challenged their foundational understanding of who God was, where God was, what God said, and their responsibility for rejecting God's overtures to them in Jesus of Nazareth. These folks had God in a box in the promised land. 
They believed then, as many Jews and others do today, that God is so specially present in the Holy Land that there is no place on earth quite like it. And, and a lot of you think that I'm talking about Alabama, but I'm really not. I'm, I'm talking about Israel. Many have given their life throughout the centuries in defense of that belief, and here is Stephen taking them on a journey through their own history, illustrating that some of the most significant encounters with God by the patriarchs and prophets occurred in places other than the Holy Land. You see, Stephen demonstrated that God had never limited himself to one land and certainly not to the temple in Jerusalem. Holy ground was any ground where God had been encountered. Many of the most cherished experiences of their fathers had taken place outside of Palestine in verse 2 of chapter 7. Stephen says it was in Mesopotamia that God first spoke to Abraham, not Israel. Verse 15 tells us that Jacob lived much of his life and died in Egypt as did all of his sons. Verse 16 reminds us that Jacob was buried in Shechem, guess where that is, despised Samaria. Awful place, awful people. Verses 20 through 22 remind us that Moses, Moses was born in Egypt. He lived in Midian and married a woman from there. <gasps> he married a Midianite? Horrors. The law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, which, yes, was not in Israel, but was in Arabia. In addition, Stephen pointed out correctly that God's original plan was not identified as a stationary temple, but rather as a tabernacle that would be portable and accompanying the people wherever they traveled. Wow, how many times have we gotten sidetracked by our own temple issues? Any of y'all remember how difficult it was for me to get this this fence that used to be here made portable. Oh my Lord, I thought I was going to lose my pastorate over it. I'll never forget how questionable it was. Some of y'all remember when, when there used to be a central core of speakers hanging from right there. And I don't know how y'all ever got the screens in here. You know, God help us, we can laugh at it, but, but sometimes we are so temple-oriented, and sometimes we are so styled, stuck. I want to tell you this, God prefers dynamic movement over static cling. And there's one thing that I have committed that if the Lord lets me keep preaching and if I live to be 90 or 95 or older, 100 like Miss Mary Draper, if I live to be that old, I don't ever, ever, ever want to get stuck. Because then I'll be missing God. Because he's always out ahead saying, hey, hey, come on, come on, boy. Get with it. Get with me. No, no, no. I don't want to go back there. I want to go up here. See? Come on. Jesus said, come after me. Follow me. 
I'll make you fishers of men. Come on, let's go. That's, that's what got Stephen killed is because the holders on to the status quo were unwilling to let go. But the gospel always beckons us forward by breaking down every conceivable barrier. That's what the book of Acts is all about. As a matter of fact, the last word in the book of Acts is an adverb. Unhinderedly. Now, we don't talk that way. But in your newer translations, it is unhindered. That is, without hindrance. In other words, what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell us through Luke's record in the Acts of the Apostles is that the, 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 I, the whole idea is to break down every barrier that, is, that exists for the, for the complete presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our opportunity is to embrace it. To embrace it, first of all, as a believer for the very first time. Now, I wonder, is, is there anyone here today who's been toying around the edges of Christianity and has yet to make that definitive step of opening your heart to the knocking of the Lord Jesus Christ? and inviting him in to be your personal Savior and Lord. During our time of invitation to him, as Brother Jack is going to be standing here, would you not allow the barriers that are in your heart to receiving Jesus to be broken down finally and come and say, Brother Jack, I want to give my life to Jesus. You want to embrace the gospel. Perhaps you've heard God <clears throat> say something to you this morning like, you know, I need to be willing to allow God to keep me in the now and not in the used to be. I need to be willing to allow God to lead me into the future as I embrace the gospel that saved me, that has sustained me, and that is my life into the future. Then perhaps you would make a rededication of your life, either where you'll be standing in a moment or, or here, at the, here at the altar. These steps make a good prayer altar or, or just a word, Brother Jack. Perhaps there are other decisions that the Spirit would be leading you to make. If so, this time of invitation is for you. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then the musicians are going to come and lead us in this hymn of decision and response. And when Brother Jack closes the invitation... It will be closed. Would you stand, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the gospel that has saved us and that is the power that will save all who will believe. Now we pray that in this time of reflection and invitation, your people would respond. Those who would be your people would give themselves to you in faith believing. Cause it to be so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.